Evil has reigned for 100 years. That's the tagline on the movie poster for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And of course, it's referring to the reign of the White Witch. And under her ruthless iron grip, everyone experienced the chill that was over Narnia. In fact, it was said that it was always winter, but never Christmas. And for children, that is a horrible way to think about life. But it captures for us the, the, the chill that was upon these children. And yet, one day, Father Christmas shows up. And he had not been seen in the land of Narnia in recent memory. And he shows up and signs of thawing of winter begin. Birds begin chirping. Flowers begin poking through the snow. And he's dispensing gifts. And the children ask him what this means. And he said... Aslan is on the move. It's that great line that C.S. Lewis wrote in this book that was also in another movie poster. Aslan, the great lion king, has returned to the land of Narnia and he has come to break the evil spell of the white witch. Now you can imagine if you're a child hearing this story or maybe even putting yourself in the, the shoes of the children in this story, how your heart would be stirred in anticipation and excitement. Now, if you can imagine that anticipation and excitement, you're in a good place to understand the anticipation and the excitement that people living in the first century land of Israel would have experienced themselves when they heard a young prophet who came on the scene announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. Of course, Jesus was coming, and he was speaking words about the kingdom of God. And he was in a very real sense saying, God is on the move. That day that you have longed for, to see the, the slavery of sin broken over people's lives, to see evil begin to be pushed back in the lives of people, that day is arriving, a day of, of beauty and truth and goodness, and it's arriving in and through me. The revolution is here. Now, that's what you would have heard when you heard Jesus speak about the kingdom of God. It was a revolution, but it wasn't like a revolution like they had known about revolutions. This one had nothing to do with power and it had nothing to do with violence. Jesus' revolution was a revolution of love and self-sacrifice and he embodied that in his life, death, and resurrection. And so we've been working our way through the gospel of Luke and Jesus has been primarily up around the Sea of Galilee in his hometown of Capernaum and the regions around there ministering to people. And in chapter 9, he's going to set his face like Jerusalem and make that long march where he knows he will be handed over and he will be crucified. But before he goes towards Jerusalem, he's going to actually send his followers out, his original 12 disciples, and he's going to give them some hands-on ministry experience for the first time apart from Jesus. And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to call our study moving out of our comfort zone because that's exactly what Jesus is doing with these original disciples. He's, he's pushing them out of the nest, so to speak, and sending them on a mission with his power and his authority. And we're going to see that there's various responses that they can expect from that. And we're also going to see that it begins to attract the attention of people in power, namely the person who was the white witch of the day, Herod Antipas. And so... We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And let me pray for us as we get ready to open these ancient texts and see what it says about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together this day into this place where we set aside to, to draw near to you as you have drawn near to us, 
Help us to understand who Jesus is afresh. For some of us, we have been raised in and around the church and the teachings of Jesus are familiar with us. And so help us to, to see anew and afresh what we need to see this day. Others of us are perhaps just sticking our toe into the water, trying to understand the basics of who Jesus is and, and what possible relevance he has for our life. Maybe some are here today just looking for a ray of hope, just a reason to keep going. Wherever we are, would you meet us here this day and break through the, the noisiness of this world and the, the noisiness of our hearts and help us to settle in on what you want us to hear this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what Luke tells us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. He, speaking of Jesus, called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now what's interesting is that Luke has been building a case for us about the identity of Jesus. He's been showing us how Jesus has been doing some incredible things that can only be described as miraculous he is healing people. People are thronging to him, bringing folks to be healed. And he's even making people whole who are being demonized. That is, they're experiencing the influence of supernatural, malevolent evil in their life, such that they become possessed by it. And Jesus is setting them free. And so he gives his disciples now that same authority and power, this delegated authority and power, and he sends them out to, to heal and to cure. And he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, if I were to ask you the question, what was the number one thing Jesus talked about? How would you answer that question? This is important for us to understand. Because if we get this wrong or we're unclear about it, we are at risk of of hijacking who Jesus is and making him over in our own image. We can get him to fit into the narrative of our lives instead of seeking to, to fit our, our lives into the narrative of his. The number one thing Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God. And to the degree that we understand that concept of the kingdom of God, to that degree we can understand what Jesus was talking about. And to the degree, the degree that that is uh, confusing in our minds or are murky to that degree, we'll be confused and murky about the person of Jesus. When we open these four gospel accounts that we have, these historical biographies of Jesus, we see that Jesus could not stop talking about the kingdom. For example, in the opening of Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here we're told that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. He's telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's calling people to believe in this gospel. So the gospel of Jesus is connected to this concept of the kingdom of God. Luke tells us in his second volume about the life of Jesus and his early followers, that after Jesus was crucified, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus could not stop talking about the kingdom of God. This was most important to him. This is what he wanted his disciples to understand. This is what he wanted the crowds to understand. 
and he's about to return to his Father in heaven. And some of the last things he's talking about to his disciples are things about the kingdom of God. And so what happens when we, we hear stuff like this? We hear Jesus inviting us into a story. There is a concept of the kingdom that we need to have in our minds. And if you've been here as a part of Mercy Hill Church, this diagram will look familiar to you. The gospel of God, the story of the scriptures told in four acts, is the story about God creating this planet and setting it up as a kingdom, his kingdom, and, and him creating humanity and crowning them with glory and honor to rule this world with him. And as the story goes, humanity turns its back upon its creator in rebellion, wanting to live life for themselves. And the rest of the story is this story about God coming to reclaim his creation, coming to set things right. And Jesus comes announcing that that day has come. And it looks forward to the day when there is the restoration of this world, where all sickness and disease, even death itself, will be in the past. This was picked up by the various writers of the scriptures with ideas like this. For example, the psalmist says, God is king of all the earth. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king of all the earth. The prophets looked forward to that day when there would be a complete restoration and they said things like this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They were straining using every artistic tool available to them as writers to talk about this day when this world would be set right. This idea of the kingdom of God returning to this world. And so Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, put himself in the position of the one who would preach the good news of this kingdom. As Luke tells us, Jesus, when he launched his ministry, went into a synagogue, he opened the scrolls, and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I am the spokesman, and I'm the one through whom God is bringing his kingdom into this world. He's saying, in a sense, God is on the move. That's why Jesus would say, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus was obsessed about the kingdom of God. He saw himself bringing it about in some sense. And he saw his whole life as being defined for the purpose of preaching this good news about the kingdom of God. So let's define the kingdom of God. As we understand the story of the scripture, we should understand the kingdom of God as the kind reign of God breaking into this world. Recapturing hearts. Reconciling people to himself. This notion of the kingdom of God really is an umbrella term that holds notions such as justice and mercy. They offer the forgiveness of sins, the call to live righteously with one another and before God. It's human flourishing. It's, it's knowing God. It's eternal life. It's shalom, the original intention of this creation. 
That's the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was obsessed about. There's a wonderful book by Jeremy Treat called Seek First. And he said, the kingdom of God is the vision of the world reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. So when Jesus shows up on the scene announcing the kingdom of God, this is what he has in mind. When he sends out his disciples now to preach the good news about the kingdom of God, this is what he has in mind. So back to verse 1. Let's pick this back up. He called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure, uh, I'm sorry, to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Just one further note. Both in the life of Jesus and in the life of his early disciples, these miracles weren't meant to just impress people. These weren't magic tricks. Every miracle was a message about the kingdom. It was a picture of the world being set right. So that when Jesus or one of his first disciples would heal somebody, that was a pushing back of the curse. And it was a foretaste of the coming kingdom. So Jesus is sending his disciples out, not just to wow people, not even to, to do magic tricks, but he invested them with his power and authority to push back the curse of this world. And so he said to them in verse 3, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, uh, no bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. A tunic was kind of the undergarment that they wore. He says, take nothing with you. <laughs> Jesus is not only pushing them out of their comfort zones, sending them on to do ministry apart from him, but he also tells them to take nothing. Why would Jesus tell them to do this? I would make the case with you that he's wanting to press them upon God for their dependence and not for themselves. I don't know about you, but if I had been a part of that original 12 and now Jesus was sending me out to do this kind of stuff... I think I'd be overcome with a sense of my own inadequacy and my own insufficiency. And I think as I would be going, I would be praying. And I think that's exactly what Jesus wants them to do. They're going on a journey. They're going to the towns around uh, the, the, the region of Galilee. And he wants them to take nothing with them. I love what Paul Miller said in his book, A Praying Life. He's talking about this issue of prayer. And he says, because we can do life without God, praying seems nice, but unnecessary. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. And I think he's right on in saying that. And Jesus, I think, knows that as well. So he's sending his disciples out and he's wanting them to, to not depend on anything that they can do. No, not their own resources, not their own talents. And he sends them out solely in reliance upon God. He continues in verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave from that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And this is interesting. Jesus says, look, I want you to go. And there will be some people receptive to your message. In fact, they will open their doors to you. They will hear more, and then they will, they will send you on your way. But he says, look, there are going to be other responses to you that are not so warm. He says there are going to be towns, whole networks of society that will harden their heart against you and want nothing to do with you. And so when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, is Jesus teaching them to be rude here? 
I don't think so. What we need to understand is in that day in the nation of Israel, when one of the citizens would go outside the boundary of Israel, they would be in what was considered non-Jewish country. And in their mind, that was defiled land. That was unclean land. And so when they came back home, when they entered into Israel again, they would shake off the dust from their feet as a sign. And so Jesus is taking something that was very well known to the people at that day. And he's telling them, if people reject you, I want you to give them that sign of what's going on to alert them to the danger of rejecting the message of this kingdom. Verse 6, we're told, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Jesus told them to go out and proclaim the gospel. So they the gospel of the kingdom. And so they go out and they proclaim the gospel. Now, my friends, I want to to press a a point home with you uh, that I think is very important for us to understand. I think a lot of times we'll look at this, and especially those of us who've been around Christian circles and have been trained, we, we understand the gospel is that Jesus died for you, right? But Jesus hasn't died for them yet. So how are they preaching the gospel? Well, we need to put it We need to put that that truth of Jesus dying for us, which is the heart of the gospel, in the context of God's desire to renew this world, which is all captured in that phrase, the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul, who was once an enemy of Jesus, later became his primary ambassador to the Roman Empire. He He would write to the Ephesian believers, and he would tell them these words. He said, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption. Through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, according to the purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So the big picture of the gospel is God's renewal of all things, reconciling all things to himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that is the forgiveness of sins. We need to remember that. Because that's what they were proclaiming. They're proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and Jesus as that king. And we're told that this proclamation of these disciples, their acts of healing captured the attention of someone very powerful. Verse 7, we're told, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. What's going on here? This is Herod Antipas. His father was known as Herod the Great. And if you know the story of Jesus, you know that Herod the Great was the one who sought to kill Jesus as an infant. And Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt to escape that intention. This is now one of the descendants of Herod. Herod the Tetrarch, and he was a a, a mean guy just like his father. And there was a time in his life when the cousin of Jesus, who was John the Baptist, confronted Herod because he stole the wife of his brother. And he confronted him and said, it is not lawful for you to be sleeping with your brother's wife. And he was thrown into prison. And the last we heard in the Gospel of Luke, he's languishing there. He's wrestling with, is Jesus really who he says he is? He sent some of his his own disciples to go and find Jesus and ask him that question. And as he wrestles with doubt and and with faith, he's languishing there. 
but Herod dispatches. Through a series of events, I won't go into them now, but through a series of events, he has John the Baptist beheaded. And so now people are saying that there's miraculous power out in the land. Some of them are saying John the Baptist has come back to life. And others are saying, no, no, this is the prophet Elijah, that great prophet of old. He's come back to life. And others had lots of opinions about what's going on here. But they had been proclaiming the good news about the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus as the king of that kingdom. And it's getting the attention of the people in power. Because as you can imagine, people in power don't want to hear about another king. We're told in verse 9, Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. He's asking the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? This is the question that Luke continually puts before us in this gospel account. Who is Jesus? He wants us to answer that question and to answer it correctly. And we're told here that Herod is seeking to see him. He's perplexed about Jesus and he wants to see them. And I think we're meant to to have a little chill run down our spine at those words because he's already put his cousin to death. And the next time we hear about Herod, he's going to be involved in the conspiracy to put Jesus to death. But here he's wanting to see him. So let's ask this question, having worked through this particular passage here. Why is Luke wanting us to know about this? Why does he want us to hear about Jesus sending out his disciples, pushing them out of the nest, and proclaiming the good news of this coming kingdom? Well, I think one way of looking at this is Luke wants us to see that Jesus will often call us to move out of our comfort zones as well. Following Jesus is not a piece of cake. (laughs) In fact, oftentimes, he will press us on those areas of our life where we feel most comfortable. We want to to keep control of it. And he will push us out so that we become more dependent upon him. But I also think Luke wants us to see that we ought to be living in such a way that provokes questions about Jesus. As Jesus moved his disciples out of their comfort zone, as they proclaimed the gospel of God, the gospel of this coming kingdom, it's attracting the notice of all kinds of people, not the least of whom are those in power. So to bottom line this for us, to be a disciple of Jesus involves moving out of our comfort zones and participating in the mission of Jesus. Did you get that? To be a disciple of Jesus involves moving out of our comfort zones and participating in the mission of Jesus. My friends, let me just say, I think this is a real challenge for us, living in 21st century America, because part of the American dream, by definition, is to make your life comfortable, right? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to to live in peace. There's nothing wrong with wanting to flourish. God's original design for creation was to flourish. But when we draw lines in the sand and say, okay, Jesus, I'll let you have this part of my life, but not this part. Or I'll follow you this far, but I won't follow you you that far. Then we're really living, not according to the kingdom of God, but according to the kingdom of our own lives. And so just a couple points of application here, three of them, in fact, my friends. First of all, give your complete allegiance to Christ the King. Let us this day give our complete allegiance to Christ the King. The early followers of Jesus went around proclaiming the good news about Jesus. We're actually told in the book of Acts that some of these Christians 
have turned the world upside down. This is what was being said about them. They're preaching about Jesus. They're turning the world upside down. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They're not going around just saying things like, you know, Jesus taught us to love one another, so we ought to be loving, although that was part of the message. They didn't say we should take care of the poor, because that's what Jesus would want us to do although that was part of what Jesus wants them to do. They went around saying, there is a new king, and this king calls for our allegiance. And so the reason why Caesar would get nervous about that and why people like Herod and Pilate would conspire to put Jesus to death is because they don't like their power being challenged. Let me just say, I think it's the same with us. We like having control of our lives. We, we like dictating our lives and, and, and seeing how we can fit Jesus into our narrative about us instead of thinking about how we can fit our lives into the narrative that's about him. The Apostle Paul saw part of his mission of preaching the gospel in these terms. He says, through him, that is through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the nations to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So we see that if Jesus is the king, part of what it means to trust him, to have faith in him, is to have the kind of faith that blossoms into allegiance with him. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in his work, Mere Christianity. He said, this is what Jesus is after. Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money, so much of your work. I want all of you. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them over to me. Give me yourself and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself and in exchange I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. I think that's a very good description of what it means when we come to understand that Jesus is the king. And he comes with healing in his hands. But he's here to recapture our hearts for God. So we have to ask the question of ourselves. Are there any areas of my life that I have said to Jesus, this is off limits? Maybe you haven't said that out loud. But you've thought that in your heart. Jesus, I'll give you an hour on a Sunday morning. I may even give money to the poor. But, but I want to be in control of my life. I want to really call the shots. I want to be the Lord of my sex life. I want to be the Lord of my bank account. I'll give you some, but not everything. My friends, is that attitude anywhere within us? If so, that's one of the areas that we need to put to death. And the reason we need to do that is because if there is an area where Jesus doesn't have say in our life, then we are still enslaved to those other lords. I love the way my seminary professor put it, Knox Chamlin. He said, Jesus is the only one who can rule you without ruining you. And that includes you yourself as well. Jesus makes a much better Lord of your life than you will ever be able to be. So let's, let's give our allegiance to Jesus Second point of application, seek first the kingdom of God. 
make this a top priority in your life. This phrase, seek first the kingdom of God, is actually from the lips of Jesus himself. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told these words that Jesus told to the crowd. He said to them, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the nations seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Here Jesus says, make it top priority. Seek the kingdom of God. So again, my friends, let's ask ourselves the question, is that what we're doing? Is that the inclination of our hearts? Is that a top priority? Is that the top priority in my life? I love the way that Jeremy Treat put it. He said, Jesus gave his followers many commands, but there was only one thing he said to seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. This one thing changes everything. According to Jesus, what matters most in life is the kingdom of God. Jesus spent so much time talking about the kingdom of God because it was not just another thing his disciples needed to learn. The kingdom of God was the framework for everything they needed to learn. Seek first the kingdom of God is a call to keep the main thing the main thing. So how are we doing, my friends? Are our lives defined by being prioritized by the kingdom of God? And the third point of application would be this. Let's intentionally move out of our comfort zones and participate in the mission of Jesus. By definition, participating in the mission of Jesus will move us out of our comfort zones. It will press us to sacrifice. It will press us to to reprioritize our lives. But this is the greatest freedom there could ever be. There's a friend of mine that I've known for a long time, although I haven't seen him recently, by the name of John Williams. When I was in seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, we attended the same church together, and I remembered him being a great man. But then I I came across an article when we lived in Canada uh, about how he had begun this ministry in the heart of Jackson, Mississippi, to underprivileged children. Every day, they go after school and round up these kids for what he calls the Sons of the King Club. Now, he says that all youth are at risk, but he said these youth especially are at risk. And he saw these these children, 50% of them had come from broken homes. He said 50% of them don't even know who their father is. And he saw a place where he could jump in and play a role in their life. And so every day, he gathers these students together. He teaches them about Jesus. They have people come alongside and help them with their schoolwork, usually because mom is working two or three jobs to make ends meet. And they're helping fit a need here. And he doesn't know this. And if I ever get to see him again, I'm going to tell him that he is one of my heroes. Because he's not living for the American dream. But he's investing himself and his resources in the kingdom of God. He's seeing an area of need that he can move into that cost him. And who knows the eternal impact it will have on these young men. My friends, that's just one example We can be involved in a number of different things. We can be involved in feeding the poor, helping the single mother. We can be involved in tutoring. We we can be involved in all kinds of things in this world. But the question is, is, are we living in such a way that our lives are manifesting a priority of seeking the interest of the kingdom of God? Are we willing to open our mouths and talk about Jesus when we do so? 
things begin to change. Leslie Newbigin is an author and a missionary to India. And in one of his works, he said, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. So my friends, I want this thought to be in your minds. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are disciples of Jesus. We exist for his kingdom and not for our own comfort. Does that impulse beat within your heart? Does that grab hold of you to make you want to spend and be spent for the purposes of Jesus? And so maybe, my friends, what we need to do is say, Lord, enable me to move out of my comfort zones for the sake of your kingdom.